0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Old Bugs by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Old Bugs is a short story by the American horror fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft, probably written shortly before July 1919. It was first published in the Arkham House book The Shuttered Room and Other Pieces in 1959. Readers will know that it is a bit of a departure from Lovecraft's usual horror and disturbing speculative fiction, It is about as close to comedy as you are ever going to get with the Lovecraft stories. The piece was written after Lovecraft's friend, Alfred Galpin, suggested that he wanted to try alcohol before prohibition went into effect. In response, Lovecraft, who himself was a teetotaler and never touched a drop of alcohol, wrote a tale of an old derelict known as Old Bugs, who turns out In a twist at the end to be Galpin himself, brought low by, quote, evil habits dating from a first drink taken years before in woodland seclusion, unquote. At the bottom of the manuscript, Lovecraft wrote, now will you be good? The woman whose engagement to Old Bugs is canceled due to his drinking, Eleanor Wing, was a fellow student in Galpin's high school press club. And now, Old Bugs. An extemporaneous substory by Marcus Lollius, Pro-Council of Gaul. Sheehan's pool room, which adorns one of the lesser alleys in the heart of Chicago's Stockyard District, is not a nice place. Its air freighted with a thousand odors such as Coleridge may have found it Cologne, too seldom knows the purifying rays of the sun. But fights for space with the acrid fumes of unnumbered cheap cigars and cigarettes which dangle from coarse lips of unnumbered human animals that haunt the place day and night. But the popularity of Sheehan's remains unimpaired. And for this there is a reason. A reason obvious to anyone who will take the trouble to analyse the mixed stenches prevailing there. Over and above the fumes and sickening closeness, rises an aroma once familiar throughout the land, but now happily banished to the back streets of life by the edict of a benevolent government. The aroma of strong, wicked whiskey. A precious kind of forbidden fruit, indeed, in this year of grace 1950. Sheehan's is the acknowledged center to Chicago's subterranean traffic in liquor and narcotics, and as such has a certain dignity which extends even to the unkept attachés of the place. But there was, until lately, one who lay outside the pale of that dignity, one who shared the squalor and filth, but not the importance of Sheehan's. He was called Old Bugs, and was the most disreputable object in a disreputable environment. What he had once been, many tried to guess, for his language and mode of utterance when intoxicated to a certain degree, were such as to excite wonderment. But what he was presented less difficulty, for old bugs, in superlative degree, epitomized the pathetic species known as the bum or the down-and-outer. Once he had come, no one could tell. One night, he had burst wildly into Sheen's, foaming at the mouth, screaming for whiskey and hashish, and having been supplied in exchange for a promise to perform odd jobs, had hung about ever since. Mopping floors, cleaning cuspidors and glasses, and attending to a hundred similar menial duties in exchange for the drink and drugs which were necessary to keep him alive and sane. He talked but little, and usually in the common jargon of the underworld, but occasionally, when inflamed by an unusually generous dose of crude whiskey, would burst forth into strings of incomprehensible polysyllables and snatches of sonorous prose and verse, which led certain habitus to conjecture that he had seen better days. One steady patron, a bank defaulter under cover, came to converse with him quite regularly, and from the tone of his discourse ventured the opinion that he had been a writer or a professor in his day. But the only tangible clue to Old Bug's past was a faded photo which he constantly carried about with him, the photo of a young woman of noble and beautiful features. This he would sometimes draw from his tattered pocket, carefully unwrapped from its covering a tissue paper, and gaze upon for hours with an expression of ineffable sadness and tenderness. It was not the portrait of one whom an underworld denizen would be likely to know, but of a lady of breeding and quality, garbed in the quaint attire of 30 years before. Old Bugs himself seemed to also belong to the past, for his nondescript clothing bore every hallmark of antiquity. He was a man of immense height, probably more than six feet, though his stooping shoulders sometimes belied that fact. His hair, a dirty white and fallen out in patches, was never combed. And over his lean face grew a mangy stubble of coarse beard that seemed always to remain at the bristling stage, never shaven, yet never long enough to form a respectable set of whiskers. His features had perhaps been noble once, but were now seamed with the ghastly effects of terrible dissipation. At one time, probably in middle life, he had evidently been grossly fat, but now he was horribly lean, the purple flesh hanging in loose pouches under his bleary eyes and upon his cheeks. Altogether, old Bugs was not pleasing to look upon, The disposition of old Bugs was as odd as his aspect. Ordinarily, he was true to the derelict type, ready to do anything for a nickel or a dose of whiskey or hashish. But at rare intervals, he showed the traits which earned him his name. Then he would try to straighten up, and a certain fire would creep into his sunken eyes. His demeanor would assume an unwanted grace, even dignity and the sodden creatures around him would sense something of superiority, something which made them less ready to give the usual kicks and cuffs to the poor butt and drudge. At these times, he would show a sardonic humor and make remarks which the folk of Sheen's deemed foolish and irrational. But the spells would soon pass, and once more, old Bugs would resume his eternal floor scrubbing and cuspidor cleaning. But for one thing, Old Bugs would have been an ideal slave to the establishment, and the one thing was his conduct when young men were introduced to their first drink. The old man would rise from the floor in anger and excitement, muttering threats and warnings, and seeking to dissuade the novices from embarking upon their course of seeing life as it is. He would sputter and fume exploding into sesquipedalian admonitions and strange oaths, and animated by a frightful earnestness which brought a shudder to more than one drug racked mind in a room. But after a time, his alcohol-enfeebled brain would wander from the subject, and with a foolish grin, he would turn once more to his mop clean and rag. I don't think many of Shane's regular patrons will ever forget the day that young Alfred Trevor came. He was rather a find, a rich and high-spirited youth who would go to the limit in anything he undertook. At least that was the verdict of Pete Schultz, Sheen's runner, who had come across the boy at Lawrence College in the small town of Appleton, Wisconsin. Trevor was the son of prominent parents in Appleton. His father, Coral Trevor, was an attorney and citizen of distinction while his mother had made an enviable reputation as a poetess under her maiden name, Eleanor Wing. Alfred was himself a scholar and poet of distinction, though cursed with a certain childish irresponsibility that made him an ideal prey for Sheen's runner. He was blonde and handsome and spoiled, vivacious and eager to taste the several forms of dissipation about which he had read and heard. and Lawrence... He had been prominent in the mock fraternity of Tappa Tappa Keg, where he was the wildest and merriest of the wild and merry young roisterers. But this immature college frivolity did not satisfy him. He knew deeper vices through books, and he now longed to know them firsthand. Perhaps this tendency toward wildness had been stimulated somewhat by the repression to which he had been subjected at home. For Mrs. Trevor had particular reason for training her only child with rigid severity. She had, in her own youth, been deeply and permanently impressed with the horror of dissipation by the case of one to whom she had for a time been engaged. Young Galpin, the fiancé in question, had been one of Appleton's most remarkable sons, attaining distinction as a boy through his wonderful mentality. He won vast fame at the University of Wisconsin, at the age of 23, returned to Appleton to take up a professorship at Lawrence and to slip a diamond upon the finger of Appleton's fairest and most brilliant daughter. For a season all went happily till without warning the storm burst evil habits dating from a first drink taken years before in woodland seclusion made themselves manifest in the young professor and only by a hurried resignation did he escape a nasty prosecution for the injury to the habits and morals of the pupils under discharge. His engagement broken, Galpin moved east to begin life anew. But before long, Appletonians heard of his dismissal in disgrace from New York University, where he had obtained an instructorship in English. Galpin now devoted his time to the library and lecture platform, preparing volumes and speeches on various subjects connected to belles lettres, and always showing a genius so remarkable that it seemed as if the public must sometime pardon him for his past mistakes. His impassioned lectures in defence of Villon or Poe or Verlaine and Oscar Wilde were applied to himself as well, and in the short Indian summer of his glory there was talk of a renewed engagement at a certain cultured home on Park Avenue. But then the blow fell, a final disgrace, compared to which the others had been nothing. It shattered the illusions of those who had come to believe in Galpin's reform, and the young man abandoned his name and disappeared from public view. Rumour now and then associated him with a certain Council Hastings, whose work for the stage and for motion picture companies attracted a certain degree of attention because of its scholarly breadth and depth but Hastings soon disappeared from the public eye, and Galpin became only a name for parents to quote in warning accents. Eleanor Wing soon celebrated her marriage to Carl Trevor, a rising young lawyer, and of her former admirer retained only enough memory to dictate the naming of her only son and the moral guidance of that handsome and headstrong youth. Now, in spite of all that guidance, Alfred Trevor was at Sheehan's, and was about to take his first drink. Boss, cried Schultz as he entered the vile-smelling room with his young victim. Meet my friend, Dale Trevor, best little sport up at Lawrence. That's in Appleton, Wisconsin, you know. Some small guy, too. His father's a big corporate lawyer up there in this burg. His mother's some literary genius. He wants to see life as she is. Wants to know what the real lightning juice tastes like. So just remember, he's me friend and treat him right. As the names Trevor, Lawrence and Appleton fell on the air, the loafer seemed to sense something unusual. Perhaps it was only some sound connected with the clicking bowls of the pool tables or the Ratman glasses that were brought from the cryptic regions of the rear. Perhaps only that plus some strange rustling of the dirty draperies at the one dingy window. But many thought that someone in the room had gritted his teeth and drawn a very sharp breath. Glad to know you, Sheehan, said Trevor in a quiet, well-bred tone. This is my first experience in a place like this, but I'm a student of life and don't want to miss any experience. There's poetry in this sort of thing, you know, or perhaps you don't know, but it's all the same. Young feller,' responded the proprietor. "'You come to the right place to see life. "'We got all kinds here. "'Real life and a good time. "'The damn government can try to make folks good if it wants to, "'but I can't stop a fella from hitting her up when he feels like it. "'What do you want, feller? "'Booze, coke, or some other dope?' "'You can't ask for nothing we ain't got.' Habachus say that it was at this point they noticed a cessation in the regular monotonous strokes of the mop. I want whiskey, good old fashioned rye, exclaimed Trevor enthusiastically. I'll tell you, I'm good and tired of water after reading of the merry bouts fellow used to have in the old days. I can't read an ancreontic without watering at the mouth, and it's something a lot stronger than water that my mouth waters for. Anacreontic? What in the hell is that? Several onlookers looked up as the young man went slightly beyond their depth, but the bank defaulter undercover explained to them that Anacreon was a gay old dog who lived many years ago and wrote about the fun he had when all the world was just like Sheehan's. Let me see, Trevor. Continued the defaulter. Didn't Schultz say your mother is a literary person too? Yes, damn it," replied Trevor. "But nothing like the old Tian. She's one of those dull, eternal moralizers that try to take all the joy out of life—namby-pamby sort. Ever heard of her? She writes under her maiden name, Eleanor Wing. Here it was that Old Bugs dropped his mop. Well, here's your stuff," announced she, in jovially, as a tray of bottles and glasses was wheeled into the room. Good old rye, and as fiery as anywhere as you can find in Chi-Town. Liu's eye glistened, and his nostrils curled at the fumes of the brownish fluid, which an attendant was pouring out for him. It repelled him horribly, and revolted all his inherited delicacy. But his determination to taste life to the full remained with him, and he maintained a bold front. But before his resolution was put to the test, The unexpected intervened. Old Bugs, springing up from the crouching position in which he had hitherto been, leapt at the youth and dashed from his hands the uplifted glass, almost simultaneously attacking the tray of bottles and glasses with his mop and scattering the contents upon the floor in a confusion of odiferous fluid and broken bottles and tumblers. Numbers of men, or things which had been men dropped to the floor and began lapping at the puddles of spilled liquor but most remained immovable, watching the unprecedented actions of the barroom drudge and derelict Old Bug straightened up before the astonished Trevor and in a mild, cultivated voice said Do not do this thing I was once like you and I did now I am like this "'What do you mean, you damn fool?' shouted Trevor. "'What do you mean by interfering with a gentleman at his pleasure?' Sheehan, now recovering from his astonishment, advanced and laid a heavy hand on the old wave's shoulder. "'This is the last time for you, old bird!' he exclaimed furiously. "'When a gentleman wants to take a drink here by he shell without you interfering!' Now get the hell out of here before I kick you the hell out of here." But Gian had reckoned without scientific knowledge of abnormal psychology and the effects of nervous stimulus. Old Bugs, obtaining a firmer hold on his mop, began to wield it like a javelin of a Macedonian hoplite and soon cleared a considerable space around himself. Meanwhile shouting various disconnected bits of quotation among which was prominently repeated the sons of belial blown with insolence and wine the room became pandemonium and men screamed and howled in fright at the sinister being they had aroused trevor seemed dazed in the confusion and shrank to the wall as the strife thickened he shall not drink he shall not drink Thus roared Old Bugs, as he seemed to run out of, or rise above quotations. Policemen appeared at the door, attracted by the noise, but for a time they made no move to intervene. Trevor, now thoroughly terrified and cured forever of his desire to see life via the vice route, edged closer to the blue-coated newcomers. Could he but escape and catch a train for Appleton, he reflected. He would consider his education and dissipation quite complete. Then suddenly, old Bug ceased to wield his javelin and stopped still, drawing himself up more erectly than any denizen of the place had ever seen him before. Ave Caesar! Moraturus te saluto! He shouted and dropped to the whiskey reeking floor never to rise again. Subsequent impressions will never leave the mind of young Trevor, The picture is blurred, but ineradicable. Policemen plowed away through the crowd, questioning everyone closely, both about the incident and about the dead figure on the floor. She and especially did they ply with inquiries, yet without eliciting any information of value concerning old bugs. Then the bank defaulter remembered the picture and suggested that it be viewed and filed for identification at police headquarters. An officer bent reluctantly over the loathsome, glassy-eyed form and found the tissue-wrapped cardboard which he passed among the others. Some chicken, leered a drunken man as he viewed the beautiful face. But those who were sober did not leer, looking with respect and abashment at the delicate and spiritual features. No one seemed able to place the subject, and all wondered... That the drug-degraded derelict should have such a portrait in his possession—that That is, all but the bank defaulter, who was meanwhile eyeing the intruding bluecoats rather uneasily. He had seen a little deeper beneath old Bugs's mask of utter degradation. Then the picture was passed to Trevor, and a change came over the youth. After the first start, he replaced the tissue wrapping around the portrait, as if to shield it from the sordidness of the place. Then he gazed long and searchingly at the figure on the floor, noting its great height and the aristocratic cast of features which seemed to appear now that the wretched flame of life had flickered out. No, he said hastily as the question was put to him, he did not know the subject of the picture. It was so old, he added, that... No one now could be expected to recognise it. But Alfred Trevor did not speak the truth, as many guessed when he offered to take charge of the body and secure its internment in Appleton. Over the library mantel in his home hung the exact replica of that picture, and all his life he had known and loved its original For the gentle and noble features were those of his own dear mother. The End